All right, well, welcome back to another Fatal Conceits podcast. Dear listener, a show about money markets, mobs, and manias. If you have not already done so, please head over to our Substack page. You can find us at bonnerprivateresearch.substack.com. There's hundreds of daily articles now on everything from high finance to lowly politics and a ton of in-depth research reports, uh, many of which were authored by none other than my guest today, uh, Bonner Private Research's macro man up in Laramie, Wyoming, Dan Denning. Dan, welcome to the show. How do you do, mate? I'm doing all right. It's dark and cold and gloomy here <laughs> in Laramie as winter approaches, but that's it's kind of how it feels like in markets right now. So I suppose that's... <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. I, we're talking just off camera now and uh you were firing off emails this morning uh at around 5 a.m i'm imagining it was still well below freezing at that point up up there uh yeah it was supposed to snow this week but it hasn't but um which is good uh and it's been nice and sunny but it has been something we've been paying attention to uh both behind the scenes and uh, when we're writing to the readers, because as it gets colder in the U.S., we're you know we're dealing with this 32 percent drawdown in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and and then these reports of um, impending or possible diesel shortages. So you're kind of trying to separate what what's fact from fake, I suppose, mm. and um, go beyond what's in the news reports to see if it's actually impacting truckers and travel prices and things like that. So. You know, we, Bill last year penned a winter catastrophe, and um, we had a bad winter last year. But I think it could be worse this year. And as as you know, because you're organizing it, we're gonna we're gonna address that subject <laughs> early December. Yeah, that's uh, December 13 uh, for our readers, listeners, and uh, viewers. I guess now that we're doing this on YouTube, uh, but I'll I'll pop a link uh, down below where you can get some more information about registering. Uh, for that event. As uh, Dan mentioned, we're doing a bit of behind the scenes work just to get that all organized. It's going to be the 2022 Redux, uh, Winter Catastrophe Redux will be uh, more well attended than our first one, given that it was the inaugural event. And we had just a a few hundred uh, readers on that very first call with Byron King and Rick Rule. But uh, yeah, as uh, as you mentioned, the second one looks to be... um, looks to be shaping up to be quite the event. It's the kind of thing that you don't want to be right about, uh, a coming winter catastrophe, but uh, that looks like what's on the plate. Anyway, uh, so let's start at the beginning, Dan, because we're talking on Thursday, the 3rd of November, and of course the big news this week was yesterday's uh, Federal Reserve meeting uh, where Powell and co hiked rates by the expected uh, 75 basis points, but I guess it was... Uh, what followed uh, what what followed that hike that kind of got markets a little spooked? We saw a 500 or so point drop in the Dow after Mr. Powell's remarks. I'm just going to read a quick quote here uh, from the Fed chairman in which he says, uh, the question of when to moderate the pace of increases is much less important than the question of how high and how long to keep monetary policy restrictive, he said, adding that it was very premature to discuss when the Fed might pause its increases. Uh, was this more or less 
in line with what you and Tom had expected? And what does it mean for both stocks and the dollar in the near term, in your view? Yeah, I think the answer to the first question is definitely uh, the market, whether you use the futures market for interest rate expectations or you listen to the, the people that are quoted in mainstream media as you know analysts for the major banks or Wall Street firms, at the beginning of the year, they thought that the highest the Fed would go this year was 3.75%. And we've been saying since the beginning of the year that it has to be much higher than that in order to bring inflation down from 8% to even 4%. Mm -hmm. And a chart that we've shown repeatedly is that if you adjust for the inflation rate with interest rates, real interest rates, so interest rates adjusted for inflation, are still negative. And uh, yeah. they're negative by a long way. So that would change if inflation halved from here. So the Fed wouldn't have to raise as high. But we've said that, that people consistently underestimate how high interest rates will have to go before inflation is under control. And they probably underestimate the Fed's willingness to raise them that high. So what you get is this mistake that we saw in the summer. And again, this mistake we've seen in the fall where the market thinks the Fed is done raising interest rates or will pivot to either raising them less fast or, or uh, even cutting them as some people had hoped. And so they bid up the price of, of uh, especially growth stocks, but you know, risk assets, as they say. And uh, everybody gets super excited because they think the end is near. But uh, as Powell said yesterday, it doesn't appear the end is anywhere close to, close to being near. Uh, he said that inflation hasn't come down since last year, that there will be no pause, and that the so-called terminal rate or neutral rate is is at least 5%. So all that could change if the Fed issues a press conference or uh, issues a press release and has another press conference. But in terms of talking to the markets about um, where interest rates are headed, the message couldn't have been any clearer yesterday. And I, I just don't know why people aren't listening to the Fed. And I think that's mm. one reason Powell spoke so forcefully. It's a strange situation, isn't it? When we get, uh, you know, uh, strong inflation prints, for example, or when things in the market seem to be breaking and investors take that as a reason to bid up stocks because they think then, okay, the Fed is now going to have to ease off because, uh, you know, because things are starting to, things are starting to, to break. Um, it, it, Powell said yesterday uh, that he, you know, is going to continue to do what needs to be done to get the job done. And by getting the job done, he explicitly mentioned bringing the rate of inflation back to around the 2% range. Uh, you've written about this before, and so both of Bill and Tom, but what does that imply for a real rate? And, and, and in other words, how far does the Fed have to keep raising before it can get, as they say, ahead of the curve, do you think? Well, you know, if you look back to the 70s in a similar situation where I think Powell is um, studying his playbook, you, you saw that the Fed prematurely cut interest rates when inflation began uh, to come down and then inflation came roaring back. So for, from that point of view, they probably want to see uh Whatever inflation target they have, whether it's two percent or four percent, which I think I think it's more likely they'll raise their inflation target because it'll be harder to get it to two percent. But mm. um, they'll want to see it there for a while. 
And it, it appears now that the only way to do that, at least according to the Fed, is to sort of crush the economy into a recession, uh, to destroy demand at the retail level because people don't have money, which means higher unemployment. None of which are great, but as long as the Fed sees that there's no disorderly action in the stock market, and more importantly, I think, in the credit markets where higher interest rates don't precipitate a bankruptcy at the corporate level, like a high-profile bank or a brokerage or really a highly leveraged financial player who could then spread contagion into the rest of the market. If that doesn't happen, the Fed is happy to either to continue to raise rates or a possibility that people haven't considered is just leave them at a high rate for much longer than expected until they see inflation figures come down. And a lot of people say, well, you know, if if there's a ceasefire in Ukraine, then the oil price will come down and energy is a huge component of, of the CPI. Or if X happens, then inflation will come down. But I think what Powell has made clear and, and the market isn't listening is that they are going to wait to see that number come down and stay down before they uh, decide to sound the all clear signal. And stocks just weren't priced for that. You know, they were they were priced as if um, interest rates were were at or near their peak, and uh, that's just clearly not the case yet. Mm. Uh, what does this mean to go back to the? We'll return to stocks in a second, uh, and uh, your retreating generals. But just to stick on um, on the Fed for a second, particularly with regards to the dollar and interest rate differentials globally. Uh, obviously, we have you know the RBA and and the BOJ in in um, Australia and Japan, respectively. Uh, in particular, in Australia not raising as much as they the market thought that they were going to raise and you know there's potential pressure on the real estate market there with a, a lot of um, household debt to be taken into consideration uh what does this spell for the greenback which is already at you know multi-decade highs in some cases against uh against foreign currencies um what can we expect going forward there well it should get stronger shouldn't it i mean <laughs> The, the wider the interest rate differential between the U.S. bond market and the Japanese bond market or the European bond market or or other markets like Australia, then uh, then you'd expect the dollar to to remain strong. And I guess what that or to get even stronger. And what that means is this weird feed. It's not weird, but it's a sensible feedback loop that that uh, and it's what we saw this summer is that. Um, the higher interest rates create big problems for leveraged borrowers, especially those in emerging markets that have borrowed in dollars because now that it's getting more expensive for them to pay back their dollar denominated debt. So it creates a demand for dollars to pay that debt back before it gets more expensive. And also it creates a demand for other so-called safe dollar denominated assets. So if you look at, for example, the one year and two year US treasuries, the yield a year ago, the yield on the one year US treasury was barely above 1%. Now it's just below 5%. Mm. So, you know, for, for foreign investors or large uh, institutions and central banks looking to park cash in a strong currency that actually now has, uh, you know, a respectable interest rate, it creates a demand for dollar denominated assets, which, which further distresses 
the price action in, in uh, emerging markets and currencies that are under pressure. So uh, not great, but I think mm. not great for, for emerging markets and in, in uh, other, other currencies. But I think what Powell has said is an echo of what U.S. Treasury Secretary John Connolly said in the, in the 70s, that the dollar is the America's currency, but everybody else's problem. And this is a really important point Tom has made, which I think not a lot of people, I haven't really seen it made elsewhere, and it's underappreciated, is that in the context of everything that's happening in the world right now geopolitically, if you view Russia and Saudi Arabia and OPEC uh, using oil and energy as a weapon against the United States, and perhaps China too using COVID lockdowns as a way to keep uh, prices high for Chinese exports. The U.S. counterpart to that is the dollar. The, the stronger the dollar is, the more it mutes the effects of inflation on energy and imported products in the United States. So Tom believes that the Fed is using the dollar as a financial weapon to counteract mm -hmm. the energy as a commodity weapon. And in that sense, if, if Powell is acting uh, both to bring inflation down, but, but to use the dollar as an economic weapon, then uh, it could stay higher for longer than people expect. And you know, for, for U.S. investors, the other implication, which we can talk about if you want, is, is what that means for gold, because there's been some interesting things that happened this week in the gold market that, um, that we need to pay attention to. Well, let's talk about that then, because, uh, you know, a lot of people, particularly our, our readers, many of most of whom I would say are in the U.S., um, you know, they've been adhering to the, what was Richard Russell's old uh, mantra and one that both you and Tom have echoed of late, which is uh, cash now, gold later. And they've been looking at the price action in gold, uh, which has been more or less range bound in dollar terms. But as we've been talking about, the dollar is, of course, at historic highs right now. Uh, but viewed in terms of other currencies, Aussie dollar, pound, euro, yen, et cetera, um, we see slightly different story. Uh, where do you see us as on the uh, the now to later curve with regards to cash now, gold later? Yeah, I, that's a great question. And we, we take it up. In fact, we decided to change the format a little bit uh, for the, the subscribers, the paid subscribers to where all these issues of which assets uh, we recommend and what percentages, which we would call our asset allocation strategy. We had intended at the beginning of the year to review them quarterly um, because that's about the appropriate amount of time to, to review the performance and then decide if, if a change needs to be made. But because we've got so many new readers who are not familiar with that strategy or, 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 only read about it, you know, in February, we've decided to revisit that every month in the monthly strategy report. So for, for paying subscribers, uh, they can take some comfort that this discussion is now a more regular discussion because it needs to be a more regular discussion. But with respect to what we said at the beginning of the year, we said no bonds, lots of cash, uh, lots of gold, less real estate. And that, that turned out to be pretty spot on which is great, but the question is what now? So I think what you're seeing with the higher uh, government bond interest rates, uh, one year, two year, 10 year, really most of the US yield curve is now above 4%. That makes annuities and fixed income products slightly more interesting 
to investors than they were a year ago, and certainly more interesting relative to stocks, because if stocks look like they could go down another 20% or 30, then putting short-term cash in a money market fund or a CD or, or um, a treasury I-bond that has a respectable yield is, is now a lot more attractive to people. We think gold is doing exactly what it's supposed to do, which is preserve your purchasing power. So if you look on a year-to-date basis, gold's down 11%, which is about the same as the Dow. But that's after the Dow has rallied, you know, almost 15% from its lows in uh, October. So now that this Fed pivot is not going to materialize, I would expect probably the Dow, the S&P 500, and certainly the NASDAQ to close or, or to go lower, whereas gold is pretty much staying where it's at. So on a relative basis, we think gold is doing what it should do for you in your asset allocation strategy, which is do better than everything else. And of course, the NASDAQ's down actually 32% and the S&P's down about 20%. So, um, so I wouldn't be surprised to see gold uh, outperform at least this month and probably through the end of the year. And that you see that there's two interesting things have happened in the price action with gold. One, retail investors have kind of gotten frustrated because gold hasn't gone up and inflation's 8%. And they're like, what good is gold if inflation's 8% and I'm not making more money? And our answer is, you're not trying to make money in dollar terms with gold. You're trying not to lose money. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'd like to be doing better, but it's a better alternative than sticking money in the bond market or or increasing our allocation to stocks. The interesting thing that happened in the third quarter is that according to the World Gold Council, which keeps track of these things, central banks added more gold than they ever have before in any quarter in the history of data from that organization. They added 399 tons of gold. And we don't know exactly who the buyers were, but we think it's probably the usual suspect. So China, which doesn't always report, Russia, which has an obvious interest in diversifying its currency reserves. <laughs> and then some of the oil and gas exporters who've been making money hand over fist have been converting it to gold. So on the one hand, uh, retail investors kind of sitting on their hands, lamenting the price action. And on the other hand, this huge quarterly surge uh, in central bank gold buying. And in fact, the year-to-date buying by central banks through the first three quarters is all already greater than any year in the last 20 years. So you can see that uh, this financial war about hard assets versus the dollar, you, you can you can see what's going on in the background. So well, I like that price. I like that piece of data because it confirms to me that, you know, at the bottom of this leveraged pyramid of financial assets sits gold. And in any private portfolio, you ought to have some portion of your wealth safely stored in that. And, and for the long term, just ignore the the week-to-week, day-to-day price fluctuations because they, they really shouldn't matter that much. Yeah, interesting. It's it's almost like that. Um, you know, our good friend Chris Mayer talks about having skin in the game and and inside knowledge into the operations of a particular company. Um, one wonders: do, do central banks know something that the rest of the world or the rest of the investors don't know when they're, as you say, hoarding uh, record amounts of, of of gold at this moment? Uh, but with respect to stocks, which you mentioned just then, and of, and of of course, they are still down considerably for the year, but 
um, not as much as they were just a month ago. Uh, October was, if I'm not mistaken, I think the best month ever uh, for, or, or certainly for a very, very long time. You'll have the exact, yeah. uh, the, exa- right. the exact stat there. Um, but when you and Tom and Bill talk about a, a significant drawdown in in stock markets, you, you toss around some pretty big numbers, and I think you know people were were head faked in the you know off the off the lows earlier in summer and thought that it was time to pile back into stocks and buy the dip, as they say. I think uh, people kind of got caught out in that what may turn out to be another bear market trap again after that that huge rally. But uh, talk us through your thesis of the the retreating generals. Um, you've you've written about a lot this year. We saw obviously last week some uh, you know a lot of earnings reports between Amazon, Meta, and Microsoft. Something like three hundred and fifty billion dollars worth of market cap was wiped out after some pretty uh, some pretty shoddy reports and grim forecasts for the rest of the year. I think only Apple uh, is is the last man standing there in the Dow. Uh, for how long can we expect? Uh, this to hold up and and what's our outlook for Q4 for stocks? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, uh, I, Bill Bonner, our uh, founder and patron saint, sent over a note to <laughs> during his sabbatical, and he's he made a great point, which which he's been making for a long time. That you know, the last twenty years, and really since 1982, if you want to go all the way back that far, in the last since 1982, the stock market's been underpinned by three pro-growth structural features, cheap energy, low interest rates, and uh, the lower and cheaper cost of global labor, which is really China since it came into the world economy in 2000, um, when it entered formally into uh, the World Trade Organization. Those all have been really favorable for uh, high GDP growth. But what hasn't happened is is you haven't seen high productivity growth. What you have seen happen is high growth in the multiples people are willing to pay for growth stocks. And at the forefront of growth stocks were the technology stocks from 2000 to now. And, you know, the earnings numbers weren't terrible in terms of the, the amount of revenue generated by these companies or, you know, it's an impressive amount. But what's notable in all of their cases is the rate of growth has slowed markedly, uh, particularly in advertising for for um, Facebook or Meta and for Google, but also in the cloud, uh, cloud computing, which for Amazon is particularly important because the cloud is the only business segment that runs at an operating profit. It pays for the rest of the retail business. And if the cloud business is growing less quickly, then... Uh, then it supports the thesis that the leading sector of the market for the last 10 years, the tech sector, will not be the leading sector of the market for the next 10 years because the growth phase underpinned by those three things is over. That's not a cyclical change in the market. That's what we call a secular change, a long-term change. And that's why our forecast for the indexes are not a 20 to 25% bear market and then back to business as usual. It's a 40 to 50% decline in the indexes with a 60 to 80% decline in the most leveraged and aggressive growth investments, which we've already kind of seen with ARC 
innovation fund and Spotify and Netflix and, and Snap and some of these other tech companies. So, you know, our whole premise since we started last year, as you know, is, is to prevent a big drawdown and loss in your retirement savings during this transition from the low growth, from the high growth phase to, to whatever comes next. So everyone's like, great, great. Yep. It's, it's over now though. Right. So 25% down, we can get back to business. And what we've said is this is not business as usual. This is, this is a new era as they used to say in the early two thousands, but it's an era where all the fundamental uh, pillars that uphold the stock markets uh, prices are changing. So it's not a, it's not all bad news because for example, you know, we're, we, we think energy is going to be the big winner in the next 10 years, which is why we made it the trade of the decade. And if you, if you look at, at some of the best performing stocks this year in the Dow, one of them is Chevron. Exxon would be, but it's not in the Dow anymore because right. it got booted <laughs> for Salesforce. So, you know, there are, there are these little pillars of light, a thousand points of light or a dozen points of light as George Bush might say. So uh, we're still looking, but um I think Tom's strategy is the correct one that you have to be really opportunistic and tactical. And you, you know, to echo Chris Mayer's point, you take, you take your chances when you see a good business opportunity or a good trading opportunity, but from a strategic point of view, when it's a bear market, you don't want to own too many stocks. And so we're, we're continue to be sort of underweight stocks compared to what you would get in a, in a more mainstream institutional portfolio. And that, that won't change anytime soon. Right. So uh, let's then, I guess, uh, move on from the last 10 years of, of uh, growth, 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 and which, as you said, is uh, seems to be coming to a, um, a fair, fairly cataclysmic end. Um, and something that you mentioned just there, our uh, trade of the decade, which is essentially long conventional oil and gas. We have a, a, a specific um, proxy trade for that. But um, the the convergence of those three enormous macro trends that Bill has underlined for us, the end of cheap and abundant energy, the end of cheap and abundant credit, and the end of cheap and abundant labor for all for various reasons, including the weaponization of all three by various geopolitical players uh, around the world right now, really sets uh, a kind of perfect storm to use an overused metaphor uh, for energy going forward. And when I spoke to our mutual friend, Doug Casey, uh, on this podcast just a few weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, he brought up the oft overlooked uh, statistic that if you go back to the 70s, which a lot of people are talking about now for very obvious reasons, high inflation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the oil and gas producers and explorers made up something like 30% of the market cap of the S&P 500. That's down to about, was down to about 3% last year. It may have inched up with some uh, strong performance in, in that sector and uh, of obvious sell-offs in, in in others this year, so maybe up around 5%, but it's a long way from its historic highs and it's a long way from the kind of uh, CapEx and R&D uh, you know, investments that you would expect to power a 21st century economy, which is you know 
largely, if not entirely, built on the fossil fuel revolution. So um, do you maybe just want to catch us up on where we are on the trade of the decade thus far and any uh, catalysts that you see uh, in the near to medium term that might be getting us to where we think we're going to be headed? Yeah, great question. We're still really early in, you know, a decade is an arbitrary time. So it's not like we um, think that it'll be exactly 10 years, but Bill has made a couple of these trades since, since uh, the millennium, since 2000. And some of it's based on just uh, sector performance. So it's a little bit like the dogs of the Dow strategy that you buy the worst performing Dow stocks at the end of the year, they're going to be the best performing stocks. And not everybody, you know, the data backs that up mostly, although some people say that in a bull market, you just keep buying the best performing stocks that you buy momentum. You don't try to buy value or, or a beaten down value because then you get caught in a value trap. But what, what we looked at when we went into the trade was that energy was historically small as a percentage of the S&P market cap. It had, his, it had had a, the worst 10 years of any of the 11 sectors uh, in the S&P. And that uh, because of regulation and um, the energy transition and the anti-fossil fuel uh, narrative from, from both Wall Street and Washington, that the companies had, had decided, okay, fine, we won't invest in oil and gas if, if you're coming after our business. It doesn't make sense to. So all of those had set up for a big, big turnaround in the performance of the oil and gas sector. That's only just started to happen. I mean, on a financial basis, it's definitely started to happen because of high oil and gas prices. But in terms of um, uh, investment flows, institutional money going into oil and gas, that's still complicated by the ESG policies of a lot of the pension funds and, and um, other funds like BlackRock and Vanguard about whether they're going to commit to investing in companies that that might bring oil and gas online. So we don't really care about any of that because we think at the end of the day, 82% of the world's energy still comes from fossil fuels. It's unchanged in the last 30 years, despite the growth of renewables. It's exactly the same, really. So um, we think that It'll be that way for a while. And that even if there is an energy transition toward more electric vehicles or to, toward um, maybe more natural gas fired plants rather than coal, that it's gonna take a lot of fossil fuels to fuel that transition, to manufacture everything you need to have um, an energy economy that's based on electricity. And uh, you know we see stories about, well, there's gonna be an OPEC of lithium and electric car battery technologies getting better and better. Great, no problem, maybe that's true. But in the meantime, just look at the free cash flows being generated by major oil and gas producers. They're great. And the big risk to us right now is that the, um, the rate hikes by the Fed trigger not just a mild recession, but a massive recession, which destroys demand for energy and brings prices down, which would lead to a correction in the stock prices of those producers. But over 10 years, not something we're too worried about given, given the other trends. So if you're entering the trade, and we write about this on a weekly basis, you just look for weakness in uh, the particular investment that we recommended. And by weakness, I mean it trades below uh, a moving average or its relative strength indicator, which is a technical indicator, is under 30. That's not happening right now, but it is something we update readers on 
who are new to the research, who like the idea, who believe in the thesis, and who who want to enter the trade. So we may have another uh, opportunity to enter the trade before the end of the year. But again, over the 10 years, we think the, the, the big factors that are pushing oil and gas prices higher should be very favorable to the free cash flows of those producers. And it should trounce any of that other crap in the uh, EV space. That's what we think. <laughs> I'll have to get that last sentence as a, uh, as a pull out quote for the, for the transcript here, Dan. Um, uh, this, I guess, brings us full circle back to the winter catastrophe that we opened the conversation with at the top and something that you and I have been looking at uh, in particular lately. You mentioned the the diesel or distillate shortage uh, in the United States. I had a look at a couple of figures the other day um, writing under a guest column by our, our good friend Byron King. And I think the situation is, I mean, as you said, it's difficult to sort of to sort the wheat from the chaff with, with regards to, you know, what's a little overblown and, and, you know, what is, what is cause for concern, but uh, some a report out by the energy information agency has the U S reserves at something like a 50 year low. Uh, actually it was even further than that. It went, went back to, I think, 1951, when the population of the United States was a mere 150 uh, million beating hearts, it's obviously more than double that now. Officially, it's something like 332 and obviously probably a lot higher than that. Uh, added to that, not just a more than doubling of the population, but we obviously have a, a more modernized economy. You know, we have ACs in every other room. We have, uh, you know, if you're plugging your Tesla in it, that doesn't go to a windmill or a solar solar uh, farm that's going to, um, you know, to an electrical grid that 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 demands real fuel. And uh, I think one other point, just to add very quickly, is the other parts of the supply chains that tend to break down when you have an industrial fuel like di like diesel that is in short supply. So the number of commercial vehicles this is trucks that freight your goods your uh, your medical supplies your you know that stock your shelves uh, at your local grocery store 76% of these uh, commercial vehicles operate on diesel fuel and they deliver 70% of the freight tonnage around the country from sea to shining sea so uh, is this something that that people uh, should be particularly concerned about i mean is it going to be an acute um, problem in the near future, or is uh, is you know there's something that's just going to see a, a bit of a price spike, and you know hopefully we'll have some mild weather and we'll see you on the other side. Yeah, uh, it's an important question because it, it's not simply a financial question. It's it's uh, what level of preparation is it reasonable for you to take given the risk that there's an interruption to our supply of diesel fuel, which translates into things not being on the shelves in the store, whether that's medicine or food, or whether it's, it's fuel at the pump for your, for your own vehicles. So uh, we don't want to be uh, blasé or, or, or um, about what the risk is, or we don't want to exaggerate it either. The truth is the refining capacity of U.S. refineries has been pretty much maxed out all year. So uh, even if we re were, were releasing more oil or could release more oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, 
we couldn't turn it all into distillate fuels and we couldn't get it all into the pumps. And that's assuming we're not exporting some of it, uh, which we are, whether it's crude oil or, or whether it's distillate fuels. So the refining bottleneck is, is a major issue. And part of, part of the problem when you run your refineries at 90% of capacity or 95% of capacity for months on end is things start to break down. And um, when they do, then you have even less product coming online. So that's a real thing to keep your eye on and it's already started to happen. But as to, um, you know, as to the level of preparation you need to take, I, I'd be prudent. You know, I, um, I think if you, like I grew up in a big family and uh, we always had extra food, uh, even though people were eating it all the time, you know, it was hard to keep extra food ready to go. But, you know, we don't associate life in most Americans or most people watching this probably don't associate life in the 21st century with the idea of having to prepare for uh, much higher food prices or an actual shortage of food. I mean, you can call DoorDash or Uber right now and they will deliver cheap calories to your door running on fuel. So, you know, we don't have bread riots yet, but um, I think one thing we've learned in the last two years from COVID and really from the response to COVID by shutting down the global supply chain is how short and fragile the just-in-time supply chain is and how long it takes to recover once government has mangled it up. So you'd be foolish to look at what's happened in the last two years and not take some sensible level of preparation uh, for both your food and fuel supplies. And I think uh, that's as important an investment decision as you can make this winter as you know whether you buy the Dow or whether Apple is, is going to hold up. By the way, you, you asked about that and I didn't mention it, but I will finish with that. Apple has held up really well. It hasn't made its lows from June, I think, which was around 139. And uh, I think it's a great litmus test for, for how long this market can hold up because anybody who manages money has to own Apple for whatever reason, because it's a great company, because it's performed so well. And it, to me, it's like um, a fortress stock that everyone flees behind the gates and they lower the drawbridge or they raise the drawbridge and everyone hides in Apple because of its liquidity, uh, because it's widely owned, because it's a quality stock. So when Apple gives up the ghost and, and makes a new low, then uh, then we'll start then we'll start talking about whether the, the market has made a low. But until that happens, I think uh, you shouldn't try to time the bottom of the market. You should probably try to fill up the bottom of your freezer with some frozen beef and chicken and things that you can cook later and then step away. You know, the, the trends we're talking about, we think will take years. And so uh, from week to week and month to month, they don't require a lot of buying and selling. You just have to get the strategy right. And I think right now we, we feel pretty comfortable with where it's at, but things can change quickly as we saw with the Fed's announcement. If the Fed came out and pivoted because of data then you could see another, you know, uh, you could see a lot of volatility in, in stock prices, but we don't think that changes the overall primary trend in markets. All right. Thanks, Dan. You guys are doing a great job there. Uh, just once again, please head over to bonaprivateresearch.substack.com. Uh, readers, listeners, and viewers will be able to get all of Dan. Tom and Bill's uh, writings on all of the above subjects and plenty more. And I guess the, the takeaway here is panic, but in an orderly fashion, 
and uh, and see if you can't beat the rush. Uh, Dan, thanks for joining us from your fortress of solitude up there in Laramie. We'll uh, we'll catch you again soon. Okay.